Welcome to the Thought Leaders Podcast. Each episode, we sit down with a different expert to discuss digital marketing and online content. In these conversations, we provide context for all the changes currently facing the digital world. Here's your host, Thought Leaders founder and CEO, David Tintner. Hey, everyone. We have a killer show for you today. We are here with Pavel Baines, the co-founder and CEO of Bluezell. Pavel is living at the bleeding edge of technology, whether it's uh, crypto, the creator economy. Pavel knows exactly what everyone else doesn't know yet. So we are here today with Pavel. Thank you for joining us. How's it going, Pavel? It's going well. Thanks, David, for having me on here. Been looking forward to this. So, Pavel, you are the co-founder and CEO of Bluezell, and I would love to know what led you to 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 start Bluezell. Yeah, I mean, so my history before was video games. So I used to work for Disney. I did projects with Electronic Arts, Microsoft, Nintendo, uh, deals with Warner Brothers. So that's what I pretty much did all the time. Anything from studio management to business development to M&A, mergers and acquisitions. And then, you know, got kind of tired and, you know, stumbled upon crypto in like 2015 uh, went down the rabbit hole like everybody else. And it was really the thing that drew me to it was, well, everything that I was into is, you know, political science, economics, finance, science fiction, distributed computing. It's like it was all combined into one thing and just went down that rabbit hole. So then that led me to meeting my partner, uh, my co-founder and went full time in like 2016. And then in 2017, it's like we had the concept for Bluezell where uh, he came up with like, hey, if the future is going to Web3, we need to, and everything's going to be built on it and these different layers, well, there needs to be a decentralized infrastructure and decentralized storage. And that's where, you know, the original concept of Bluezell came from. So what brought you to make that leap that things need to be um, decentralized? It was, well, it's interesting is, so when we started Bluezell, we didn't really fully know what we were going to do in crypto and we're just doing projects and figuring out what went along. So We'd actually moved out to Singapore, uh, myself and Neeraj part of the time. And fortunately, we ended up connecting with KPMG and some of the banks here. And they hired us to build out a KYC, you know, KYC meaning know your customer. So and it basically was an identity platform for banks and using the blockchain and Ethereum to do it. So we built that out, did it. And while we did it, we're like, okay, we've authenticated that. Let's say David is David mm-hmm. and we've stored the files. And then Neeraj said, well, those files themselves are still sitting in a centralized server that could go down, could get manipulated, could be stolen. Shouldn't the entire infrastructure, not just a blockchain, but a storage component also be decentralized uh, on top of the blockchain? And that's kind of what that is. it was really doing that project. Very cool. So I want to dive into this a bunch because in, in doing the research for the show, um, I started going down the rabbit hole of decentralized file storage and kind of looking into how things are done today and what are, I guess, the benefits and trade-offs of the potential options. So, um, and please jump in as I uh, am definitely a rookie in this area, but but as I understand it, and I wanna break this down for our listeners, basically when um, something is, is um, on the blockchain, the blockchain is essentially pointing to an address. Right, and the point, uh, the the thing that's stored in the blockchain is the confirmation of where that address of that file would be. But what you're saying is that 
okay, cool. We've confirmed that the file is supposed to be here. Um, maybe that's a server in someone's home. Maybe that's a Google Drive. Maybe that's um, wherever it could be. But you're saying that there's no uh, security for that location itself? Very close. So what happens is, let's just say, let's take, yeah, so let's say you store a file and the blockchain approves that, okay, this, this belongs to David, right? But where does it actually sit? So most products are going to be like, okay, we're going to store it on a server at, you know, Google Cloud, AWS, or even like something they rent out somewhere like on a server farm or a stack. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want it to be duplicated or backup, you got to pay for that, right? And if that one goes down, okay, we got that second one. Or if there's an outage, then you know you got to wait for it to come back online. Um, with a decentralized version, what we're saying is, hey, put servers everywhere. But the servers we're using is going to be like you, David, at home with your computer sitting there. Anything. So instead of in one server, let's put them in lots of them around the world no there's no hierarchy they're all kind of the same and even if one goes down it's instantly replicated everywhere our blockchain assures that that is the same file that always was there when you say servers around the world a server is a computer right so you're yeah. these are um computers that uh bluezell owns these are computers that run personal pcs businesses what what are these computers so some would be uh, initially are some that we control like through you know uh, servers or clouds but then we have a number of what we call validators who are also running these servers or nodes that also sit out there right so the goal is as our as our blockchain and our products get bigger and better more outside people come in and it's less from us so there could be let's say um people all over the world that are each um storing on their computer a is it a, a, um, a copy of the original file? Is it a piece of the original file? And then it's, it's pulled back together. What are, what are they actually storing? Um, I guess they're all copies of the original file because the original file technically doesn't exist. It's just stored in all, but it's not pieces. So okay. there's only really one file, but it's just replicated everywhere. And so when you need to retrieve it and grab it, the network's going to be like, okay, for David's file of, you know, his pictures from his last honeymoon or whatnot, vacation. This is the closest node to it. Let's go grab it there instantaneously. Very cool. So what are some of the the use cases for um, the this type of technology? Like what are the types of files that people are saving? I would say now the best use case is NFTs, right? So non-fungible tokens, because you'll get this profile pic or an NFT now you're storing it on a marketplace somewhere or you store it yourself, but you don't know where it's at. It could be stored in just one single place. So yeah, the blockchain will say that, David, you own this, you know, Pepe NFT, but if it gets lost or gone, you still own it. The record is you're the owner, but there is no actual file to that name anymore. So the goal is that that's the best use case that you got that. And you're like, hey, I want it replicated and sitting everywhere that's authenticated, that it belongs to me, it's there but it's never going to go away. I think we need to, uh, I mean, that's that's a pretty crazy topic you just touched on. I think we need to kind of dive in deeper for listeners here that when you're owning an NFT, essentially you're, you're buying the, uh, let's say the certificate, if you will, that you own something, but you're not actually buying the thing itself. Is that correct? 
But you are buying it, right? What I'm saying is if it's not, you got a painting at home, right? On your wall. You have a certificate also that says you own it. If you accidentally burn down, now what? You don't actually have it anymore, right? So in this whole oh, thing, the burning is that yeah. that server that it was stored on went away. So you still got the, the certificate on the blockchain that says this is yours, but the product at least ceases to exist. Do we know today how common this problem is? Are there tons of people holding NFTs um, that the thing that their certificate, if you will, says they own is no longer exists? No, I don't think that's happened, but it's the assurance that right now, I mean, centralized systems do work, right? But we're talking in the long run, they can go down. And as more attacks come, but we would feel more, it's, why do we use Bitcoin and everything, right? Or crypto, because it's more sound, the security, the verification, anti-censorship, all that type of stuff. So it's only natural that these users be like, well, I want my actual products also stored, verified in a way that's anti-censored, or I know it's not going to go down same way. So would I say it's a massive problem? No, but is a risk out there? Yeah. And is, are people going to be more comfortable having better secure measures? Yes. And it sounds like even if the problem is not super common in the case that it does happen, if you just paid a ton of money for something and you know, even if there's a 0.01% chance of it happening, it's kind of a game over scenario for you. Yeah, if does. I can go to if I can go to a storage layer that's much easy, that's much secure, redundant and stays me in that future hassle, why wouldn't uh, I'd want to do that? How does Bluezell fit into the rest of the crypto ecosystem? It's a file storage layer. And what is it connecting to? Um, well, for us, it's, I mean, the core that we started with was the, the file storage layer, right? But what we've kind of evolved to over the past couple of months is going full circle. It's really weird. It's like you connect the dots backwards, right? So we did file storage. Um, then in around May, we really want to focus in on that creator economy because we believe content is the future. And my background was from content. And then as certain game mechanics in crypto started proven out, uh, I'm not one of those game people that believe a couple of years ago that crypto gaming is going to work. Uh, coming from the games industry, what we do is we're okay not being the first people. But once you see something working, it's like, okay, can I innovate on that? Can I do it better? And, you know, all the games that have been successful over the last 10 years, uh, the free-to-play games, the the mobile games, the social casual ones, they weren't the first ones. But once people figured out, they're like, oh, I can do better than that one. So we started, the goal is really funny that we want to go more content, support creators and things like that. Then over July, August, saw, okay, gaming's working. There is something there. This is my background. So I was able to assemble uh, a small Skunk Works team to start working on how would a new type of game look like on Bluezell. And how we thought this happening was, okay, gaming finance, and we can touch this later, is going to be the future of how games are going to onboard the next billion users. I, I believe that will happen. So can I build killer applications like products in gaming? Yeah, I've done that in the past. I can work with people to do that. They need storage and infrastructure. So those game assets need to be there. And then the third element would be the finance side of how do you leverage these game assets? Well, going to you, how do we fit into the whole crypto thing? Our blockchain is built on Cosmos and Cosmos is designed to be interoperable that works with other Cosmos based chains. So you've heard of some, uh, you might've heard of like Terra, uh, Kava, uh, all these systems like that and say so like, okay, 
if we focus on the gaming element and the storage and we can leverage because of the Cosmos ecosystem, these other financial platforms, we can actually aggregate some of those products into our game. So fundamentally, we kind of that change that is like a real clear focus is that gaming will be the future. Gaming will help onboard users. The current gaming user experience in crypto is not good. <laughs> so what can we do? Build great content, give them a blockchain that is super fast, like 10,000 transactions per second, leverage DeFi protocols that are out there because of Cosmos, which we're already attached to, and give the storage layer that protects their game assets that they want to acquire. What do you mean gaming will help onboard users? You onboard users to, to where? To crypto. And what I mean by that is the crypto names and people here, we know the usability issues and we almost kind of, kind of take pride in the friction. But if you think about what are we going to get like my kids into it? Well, they're, yeah, they're peers. Gaming is a good way because a good friend of mine, he had mentioned this uh, and he's not a gamer, but he said what he saw the potential. He said, it's easier for people to play games already. If they play games and now they can own their assets and with the assets, if they put it on crypto, whether it's play to earn or they can stake it and earn extra yield on, oh, what's yield? Oh, that's from staking. What else can I stake? Tokens that do DeFi. Like it introduces all these concepts that inherently in the game, which is almost going to teach them about crypto and the advantages. He said, that is much easier than us going to them, trying to rewire them and tell them the history of money that we've been doing for the last five years. Because no one's that that blows people's mind. It's easier to say, "Hey, use this product," and all of a sudden introduces these cool things that you can do. So that's where I see that gaming is kind of going to let that next wave of people to come in. It's it's basically the educational system for this new type of finance. That's right. So you uh, you recently built a game. Uh, I won't say we built it. We're in the <laughs> we're in the process of production of it. So um, it was really, we designed the first stage of what kind of game would it work, storyline, the team that would work on it, what type of game it would be. And we've just, what we've done is we just announced it, that, hey, here's this game, here's the artwork, here's how it will be, here's what you to expect, and now we're in production. So the first version will come out, you know, sometime in end of Q1, uh, 2022. But starting this week and probably every week going forward is, Artwork, game design, certain elements of it will start giving the community because so then they can give us feedback and, uh, you know, be able to develop this game in a proper way. That, that's really interesting. Is that um, typical for, for game development to kind of involve the community so closely in the production? No, this is one of the rad things about crypto, right? I mean... You launch a product and you're building in real time and getting feedback from the community and they're all vested as you're going through this experiment. So typical when you do games, it's, oh yeah, okay, we're going to work on this game. could be anywhere from six months to let's say three years. It's all done in stealth. And then all of a sudden you launch it and hope they come in. In crypto, it's like, tell them what you're doing, expose them all the way, let them be involved and give them feedback um, and build it in real time. And it's, it's an amazing thing to do, I think. That's, that's probably one of crypto's biggest killer features. So the game you're building is a play-to-earn game. What does that actually mean? I mean, the easiest way, it's like you're at the casino, slot machines, right? You're playing, the slot machines are designed that, hey, every so often you're getting some money back. So you're putting back in. So, you know, people would say like, hey, I slotted the slots for like four hours, but I only lost like 30 bucks, but it was fun. 
because they're getting enough feedback to keep playing and going on. So what this is, as you're doing elements of the game, we're earning transaction fees, right? Because you're doing transactions, selling products, things like that. And then parts of that is going actually back to the player to earn. So it's like they enter the game, they're doing things. The ones that are more successful are actually generating a portion of that revenue right back to them. And with that, it can lead to more newer creative things like, David, if we know what your performance is and how much you earn, maybe later on because you stake we could, or something with like, hey, we can lend against that. Like this is where the whole game finance comes in is like these play to earn games are good killer apps to bring people in. They evolve, but now based on your performance or your work ability or your skill level, that could be like, you know, your credit score in the new crypto world. It's really cool basically to think about the game is just kind of this layer that sits on top of the currency or the token with, I guess, the goal of the game and everyone who's playing the game or anyone who owns the, the currency has a stake in wanting the gaming layer to be successful because, as you said, the more successful the game is, the more transactions are happening and more transactions that are happening, the more volume and essentially there's correlation between transactions and the worth of the currency, right? Correct. So um, this is a really, uh, a really cool concept, I think, that um, you're, you we're discussing here, that the, the game is a layer on top of the currency to incentivize more movement, more uh, of the currency itself. I think it's really fascinating uh, where, just like everything in crypto and DeFi was, play to earn just kind of come out, a couple of models have shown, that itself will probably evolve how that currency and token use, but that's the great thing about the space, right? Take a little bit, start using it, adapt, evolve, and keep it going. And so you mentioned that you um, you kind of waited a bit to see if this was going to catch on. You weren't the the, the earliest adopter of uh, crypto gaming. What are some of the the more well known projects that did hit it big that start to think that this is going to be huge? Um. It was really Axie, right? They proved out the play to earn game mechanic, right? Hey, it's working. It's doing stuff. Is it perfect? But no game ever is, right? And especially they're the first groundbreakers, right? And people are saying, hey, it's, it's, it's a grind of a game. You're not having it as much fun. Why should I, like, you know, but it's working. So now what you do is what game developers do is they take those and saying, how can I tweak it? How can I make it a bit better and make my own version of it? And that's, that was really it. It's like, once you saw that there's an audience and something was working, okay, let's try something with that. And that was really it. What were the things that you think could be optimized from some of the earlier projects and done differently now in, in your game? I think the fun factor could be improved on, right? You don't want a game to be a grind that I'm just sitting there mm -hmm. grinding away all day for hours just to play to earn. Uh, you want to have that fun factor, especially if you're going for that Fortnite crowd, right? 14 and up. It better be fun. Uh, and then the other one that could be is, uh, and we're working on that, is the tokenomics of actually where the demand of it is actually increasing the price, which is increasing the barrier to entry to get into the game. And it's oh. really costly to do it. So the balancing of that has to come into play of, uh, it's high enough that people are doing it and you can make some money, but you don't want it to go out of control that people are like, well, I've got to, it's, it's friction now. What do you mean that the barrier entry to play the game is so high? That's because you, you have to buy some of the token in order to enter and to, in order to buy the smallest amount of the token it's, that you need for the game, it's, it's already so expensive? 
Yeah, so let's just take Axie, for example. I'm, I'm going to make it the most simplest way, is to enter the game and play, you have to have these Axie characters. Mm-hmm. Now, the Axie characters cost a set amount of money, and you can only buy them with your Axie token. Well, the Axie token, demand is made to go higher and higher. So that has made the and Ethereum prices and gas fees have actually made the price of getting an Axie and starting the game higher, where it could be like five $600. Well, I can buy a PlayStation for $500. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what can you do to combat that? If, uh, if demand does go up of the token, how can you, can you just lower the prices of characters? Wouldn't that kind of ruin the game for the people who've already bought them at the higher prices? Yeah. I don't know how Axie is doing. They've got their own ways that they're working on it. But for us now entering it, we can say like, okay, what are those problems that happened? What can we do to balance that out so that doesn't happen? And how can we hedge or offset it? And that's part of the tokenomics that are being designed. Do you see um, each kind of game that comes out built on this in this paradigm using its own um, token or own currency, or do you see the the tokens transferring between games? That I don't know yet. That's you know to take one way or another would probably be not the right approach, right? Like right now, it's like hey, you obviously want your own token, and that's doing it. But maybe that asset or your token can be used somewhere else and with, you know, interoperability, cross bridges, uh, who knows, right? That's, that's probably one of the new experiments or uh, wild frontier for it. But today it looks like the trend is that each project is kind of having its own new token, right? Yeah. And you mentioned that that's um, to you, that was, that was kind of like, you said it like an obvious thing, like you obviously want your own token. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Um, why is that such an, like an obvious benefit because just to an outsider I'm, I'm thinking well you know what if no one wants my token what if there's no demand it's not worth anything maybe i should start with a token that already has demand and and increases the ease of use because let's say people are already holding ethereum for example let's play the game on ethereum why was it you know such an obvious thing that no you should start your own token well i mean games right now have in-game currency in their own all the time right and if you have your own token you can actually dictate what can be done with that. If you need to increase the supply, if you want to burn it and reduce it, you have all that control to balance out the game. So in far of being a game and having your own token, it actually is better for balancing because you have control over that. I mean, we don't want to say, but you've got control of that money supply to make sure that the game is still fun. What kind of, um, I guess, checks are put in place to, as you mentioned, like if, if the, game producer has control over the money supply how can the users of the game um kind of buy into the idea that the game producer is not just gonna do something unfair or silly with the money supply uh i mean short term it would probably be the trust factor if i just want to just unlock a whole bunch of our treasury tokens and put them on the market who's stopping me from doing it other than trust in the team and doing the right thing right so I think that's a deterrent uh, right there uh, for that. Second is as you move a lot of these probably treasuries into DAOs, it could be just voted on by the, uh, the, the group, right? The community that actually is supporting the game. They can say, hey, the game's not getting fun. Let's put up a proposal. Let's you know, buy back or decrease the money supply so we can burn them, or let's increase it because it needs to solve this problem. Okay, okay. So there's... Um protocols in place that can move the decision-making through this distributed way rather than the centralized 
game producer or publisher making all the decisions in a you know in a black box. Correct. That's cool. Very cool. Um, what are I mean, this is such a new world, and I think that things are moving really quickly. What are some of the things that you're most I don't, anxious about or worried about in the evolution of, of, of this technology? Wow, what would I be nervous of? In now, in, in terms of crypto in general, or let's say on game finance and you know content now being on it? Yeah, I think, I think both are fair game. Uh, yeah, it's really hard because NFTs have proven that the, it's cross-culture and it's bringing demand. Um, I think having, I mean, obviously Ethereum's big thing is scalability, but now other layer ones are coming along that might solve all those usability challenges and Ethereum will have its place and these other blockchains will have theirs. Um, I think, let's say, in the gaming side and game developers that we have that we're working with, they're new to it and trying to figure it all out at the same time. Like you got this token element. Yeah, it's a currency, virtual currency that you're used to, but it's actually tied to a blockchain and the blockchain has these assets. So I think the learning curve probably makes me the most nervous and that could cause delays or certain problems because yes, things have been proven out that they work, but they haven't proven out like, okay, what else can come in and throw a wrench in the whole thing? And that's part of the, I guess, experiment of this entire thing that we're in. And, and yeah, you mentioned before how um, games are, are um, being used as this kind of educational tool, right? So there's a lot for people to learn and they don't know exactly how to, to start doing something. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think are um, some of the ways that content creators should be using NFTs or distributed file sharing that they just let's say you're you're a youtuber a podcaster um why should this be on your radar and why should you be you be thinking about this technology i mean it depends i don't think a youtuber potentially should to me nfts right now the stuff that works is art or maybe art based that represents the culture right so it's not a thing as like i have to put out an nft or i have to do this um, if it doesn't fit for you, that format or that medium, then you don't really need to do it. Now, if I was a artist, graphic designer, into fashion, things like that, now I got to pay attention because now a new format has come out that reflects what people like to visually see for the, for the time being. Now, if go to something like gaming, you know, games should look at like, oh, we can introduce these new game mechanics that introduces more fun and ownership because people have their assets. So maybe we should pay attention to it because that next Fortnite crowd that's playing it, they might just switch over because they're already used to virtual currency buying their skins. Now they're like, wait, I can play this game. Yep, eventually I'll have the same graphics and engine and speed and the same talent building a Fortnite style game. And then say, I'm gonna go there because that's actually more fun and I get to keep all my stuff. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the customers for Blue Zell should be game publishers of, um, of other future games? Or will the end customer always be the user that is, is buying the, the token? Yeah, my plan would be that, hey, we launch our first game, that proves out all the mechanics of what we said in our ecosystem. Killer application game, it's fun. You can store it on a decentralized storage, that's out there. So that benefits our nodes and keeps that coming up. So everything connects, what, basically what we built, nothing new, we're just adding a consumer application on top of it. 
So that works. And then it's like, oh, we can do DeFi because it's already connected to all these other DeFi protocols on Cosmos, takes advantage of that. So that completes that trifecta. People are like, wow, if I'm launching a game, maybe I should just go to Blue Cell and have, all I need to do is build the killer app and then they'll take care of everything else on that side. So that, so my goal would be that we have one game that's awesome, proves that out, and then we just onboard uh, everything else. I don't know if you're familiar in the gaming space like Steam. Okay, yeah. Right? Steam, made by Valve, they, they did the same thing. They've got Steam, which is their, takes care of everything, the platform for distribution, collecting money, the basics. But then they also built their own IP on top of it, which is, you know, Left 4 Dead, Team Fortress, Portal. They make great games. So that's how we kind of see this unfolding. Okay. Okay. So Steam is a competitor or the competitor for Blue Cell then? No, because they're not in crypto, right? They're in traditional gaming. I'm saying they're a good analogy that they're giving the back end. If, so they make their own games. But if you and I were great game developers, we can go in there and we're launching it on Steam. But let's say that if, I, if I'm a game developer, um, crypto is is sort of the tool, not necessarily the outcome, right? Like it's one of the tools I could use to make a profitable game or to make my game fun or to onboard users or make it engaging. Um, I, I assume that if um, crypto games continue to prove that this is the best tool for making games profitable, then more and more companies and platforms will go in the direction of, of using crypto as well. Yeah, potentially. I don't think it's that easy. Like when you have... People always have this fallacy that they think that, okay, you know, all these guys will spend their money and do it and they've got bigger resources. What they forget is at the end of the day, these companies are still run by people and people have vested interest of their own project, their own doubts, their own insecurities, and whether they want to convince everybody down the up the, up the line or down the line to take a, what they perceive as a risk. So that stops it from there. So I'm never worried about like, well, EA could do this or supercell it's like yeah i know how big you companies are and how to sell it in i mean like i said five years ago in singapore we built four and a half years ago we built a know your identity system for the banks they never went to production with it and, it, and they, they're not even close it's four years later so oh. you can do the you can verbally say that we're looking at the space and we got it we're keeping our tabs on i know how long it takes i have a thing that you can operate out of fear or operate out of being fearless. So I choose to be fearless. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So, uh, so in Q1 2022, you guys are launching the game. Uh, it's on the, the roadmap uh, for Blue Zell. Really, that's the focus. It's put that game out, do the upgrade uh, to the newest version of Cosmos, which is called Stargate. So at the same time, that uh, one side of the team is working on the game, our game development team. The tech team is uh, working on the migration to Stargate and um, tidying up, you know, firming up our storage layer as well. And then once we unlock Stargate, then that opens us up to all those other Cosmos chains to do all the DeFi protocols that we want to do. So that's really the next three month plan. Yeah. Okay. Well, very cool. Uh, it's, it definitely feels like you're onto something uh, really powerful. And as you explained, the potential is there for, for this to be something that um, creates a new paradigm in, in, in the world. Um, Pavel, before we, before we sign off here, anything, um, 
Anything uh, you'd like to leave our listeners with? Where can they find you? What should they be watching out for? Yeah, I mean, the best place is uh, Twitter is I'm at Pavel Baines. Uh, uh, for myself personally, if you go to Bluezell at Bluezell HQ, you'll get all the information and you can follow the link to either go to our Discord or our Telegram. Awesome. Yeah, I think, we, I was... I think we're up to like 73, almost 75,000 uh, Twitter followers for Bluezell. So I think the game product is really connecting with people. They understand it and the clear path of what I said. Killer product, killer application we can deliver. We've got the blockchain to support it. We can tap into DeFi and we have the storage layer already. So it's kind of like, all right, let's make it happen now. Very cool. Well, we are rooting for you and definitely looking forward to see uh, how things progress and, uh, and excited to play the game. So thanks a lot for joining us, Pavel. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leaders Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what's trending in the online sphere and how you can make sense of the cookie-less internet, make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our weekly newsletter at thoughtleaders.io. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts to stay tuned for the next episode. This podcast was hosted by David Tintner and edited and produced by me, Noam Yadin.